This is Ed Voices from Education International in Brussels. Global news, opinions, and more from professional teachers, educators, and advocates dedicated to policy education for every student. Hi, John. Here we are at EI having another chat as part of our OECD series about PISA this time. And John, who is a consultant extraordinaire for OECD, John Bangs, and I'm Martin Henry, the research coordinator. So we're going to be having a chat about some of the things that came out of the London meeting and also were issues that were raised by the actual release of the two documents. We'll start with a question about rankings, because rankings have been controversial for us at EI, and there are things that come up in the rankings that we'd like some more light shone upon. If we take, for example, the fact that New Zealand and Ireland both dropped scores but rose in the rankings, how does this sort of thing happen? Well, international studies of education have been going for a bit. TIMS, for example, which is the study of maths and science, has been going for far longer than PISA. Uh, PEARLS, which is a study of achievement in reading, for example, in primary education, early years education, is a relatively new kid on the block. PISA has really got going since 2000. And to be honest, actually, I think the idea of rankings was uh, part and parcel of the OECD learning from those who constructed the original one, which was TIMS. And I don't think they learn the right lessons, to be honest, actually. Uh, they learn the right lessons in terms of media publicity because everyone loves a performance table or a football score or knowing where their club is <laughs> in the particular league. But actually, that particular kind of approach might work for your local team and the life and death position you find yourself in every every week when you go and see them but it doesn't work for something as highly complex as education or indeed as highly complex as education systems and individual countries and cultural differences so the lesson I think OECD learned was you can get a big bang for your buck in terms of publicity I think the lesson they failed to actually adopt was actually the pitfalls are uh, all sorts of idiosyncrasies even within the PISA league tables themselves such that to do with the point system which applies to performance in individual countries that point system uh, yielding all sorts of oddities such as Ireland itself going up when they have fewer points New Zealand going up when they have fewer points compared with the last study in 2006 it's that kind of thing which obscures something far far more important and that is how do countries do relative to each other what are the key policy issues that come out of PISA? What can individual governments learn from PISA in terms of constructing their own education systems? Now, the one thing you can be sure of is you don't get that from a performance table. No, and I think some of the nuance in that <coughs> is really interesting in that if you take the New Zealand score, the highest performers had dropped slightly, which is what had brought the score down but the lowest performance had in fact improved. Yeah. So if you're looking at policy platforms, that's the way that countries would best be looking at how the, the information coming across them would work. Well, the most important thing about PISA, and I am a supporter of PISA in general, warts and all, is that actually it says some important policy things about how countries' education systems 
not about the evaluation of teachers, not about the evaluation of individual kids. It says some important policy things about how governments should structure their education systems and who are the key stakeholders in that. And in terms of structure, it is quite obvious and it comes over time and again and is completely obscured by the media frenzy over rankings is that for a successful education system which meets the needs of all children and young people you have got to have a systemic approach that means the country has to know what it wants where it's going and the kind of skills and attributes and confidences that the kids can take away from statutory schooling into adult, into the adult life uh, and it's got to know about how you broadly structure that. Now, I, I, I'm not a great sympathiser with those who say that PISA tells you nothing and that actually it's all culturally bound to individual countries. I don't agree with that, actually. Uh, having been on the PISA governing body, uh, I do know that a great effort is made to take into account cultural difference when questionnaires are adapted to meet individual uh, country students' needs, as it were. But uh, I do think that actually all that stuff, and there's a whole lot more policy implications uh, that can be pulled out of it over time, is something which, as I say, gets submerged when you get individual countries uh, releasing the results. They're either in uh, shock, dismay, disbelief, or they're celebrating, as they are in Singapore, which came out top. Uh, and actually, at the end of the day, you ask yourself, well, what does that mean? What does it actually mean for us, you know? Uh, and uh, as I say, I do wish the OECD had learned that lesson, actually, and uh, in a sense, not hidden the light of their own uh, reports uh, under media hype and frenzy. Okay, I'm with you on that, John. I think that PISA sets up a whole lot of information for us that is fascinating, and when looked at in a policy-directed way and in a systemic system way, is able to shine light which should be able to cross borders and give us information which we can draw on. Yeah. And if we take an example of Portugal, who actually did really well in the refugee data about immigrants coming into the country, were performing there nearly as well as local um, locals who, who were born and brought up within the country. And the explanation that was given at the Brussels meeting was because these are loser phone speakers, that is Portuguese speakers coming yeah. into Portugal and are therefore more able to integrate into the learning system and are more able to have equity with local learners. What else did we learn about refugee education? Because I know for EI this is a big issue and has been an area of focus for us. And what did the PISA uh, this time round tell us in this area? Well, let's just stand back a little bit. The, the focus of PISA 2015 is on what's called the main domain, which is science, although evaluations were done in numeracy and literacy as well, or numeracy and reading, not numeracy and literacy overall, but in science. Uh, and it's the background questionnaires of teachers, of students, uh, principals, uh, of parents, that in a sense enable uh, the OECD to come to policy conclusions because you can correlate views with uh, results and if the views match high results then you can come to an assumption about what is successful in that country. And one of the things that's come out as being really successful and a very very broad consensus amongst countries is that actually uh, 
children of refugees and asylum seekers and immigrants in general um, are an enormous benefit potentially and asset to education systems. Why? And it seems obvious when you think about it, these are families, these are children with nothing. Their homes are destroyed, their countries are actually devastated, there's either no work or far worse. They come and they know that the only way that they can climb out of that situation is through education. That's immense motivation, that's an immense motivation. Uh, and in fact the OECD, absolutely to their credit, recognise that in terms of the policy conclusions about refugees and talking to teachers and talking to parents um, and uh, looking at the results, they've come to the conclusion that there are some easy wins, quick wins that can actually be, be, uh, be made. And they've drawn, for instance, on the experience of Germany particularly in terms of those quick wins. And that is recognising there are large numbers of children from, from families who are in desperate situations. Then teachers need uh, support, individual support, not only in terms of, uh, as it were, those children's home language, but also in terms of wider support about emotional crises and disasters, and also uh, to uh, train teachers themselves in a whole set of things, including uh, understanding some of the key languages and the key cultures. It's about training and it's about support for immigrant students. And something else that they've come to the conclusion over, and it's a very, very important conclusion, is, is don't segregate children in the education system. Don't come to conclusions about young people early on being more academically minded or more vocationally minded and then filtering them off into different tracks, as they call them. Because if you do that, then you're annihilating the possibility of late development amongst kids, uh, about uh, kids whose motivation and enthusiasm might, might, come might come relatively late in their school careers. Uh, and you lose that because you're going to put them into a narrow track. And all that I completely agree with on the OECD. So basically they say is get the quick wins over, get the support into schools, and then start looking at the structure of your education system, not only to meet the needs of asylum seekers, but also to meet the needs of all kids, particularly those who haven't done well at the beginning, who may very well do well later on. So we would agree with a local story from our homeland that grammar schools are a bad idea because that feeds into that whole question of segregation. And we'd also agree that the focus on refugees that looks at developing teachers, developing professionally their ability to interact with, with different types of students and student diversity can have a positive impact. And I will mention a country that has had difficulties in the past and clearly in this area has done better this time and that's Sweden mm -hmm. that they've got a number of refugees they've been working with and they have found ways to improve their ability to raise the scores of those students. Well I completely agree uh, and uh, I am really pleased for Sweden um, because uh, a whole series of structural mistakes in terms of education reform was inflicted on Sweden. I think the current government is trying to pull them out of that morass. But what Sweden realised more than anyone else, and I, I, I think there are a whole set of other countries, including Nordic countries, need to realise this, is that actually schools are absolutely the centre of, communi of, of communities. They represent the moral centre for students. And by me, moral centre, I don't mean religion or education, 
I mean centering kids so that they have efficacy, confidence, respect for each other and knowing that they can go out into adult life confident that they've uh, come from a community where things work, where children can support each other, where teachers are essentially behind them and not undermining them. Now, you know, Sweden's begun to realise that and good for them. I might say, just to pick up earlier from your point about Portugal, I'm delighted that Portugal's done extremely well because one of the things they're up against is an entirely divided system in Portugal. Very, very large sector devoted to private education. And one of the things that actually really knocks me back about PISA this time, and it's one of the few new bits that I'm, I, I recognise, and, and that is that in the past the OECD has always said private education and public education are of equal value in terms of performance if you take socio-economic background into account for public education. This time they say actually taking socio-economic background into, into account public education you get better results than you do in private education. Now it may well be that Portugal is a classic example of that. It is actually suddenly boosted its public education system, built on the fact uh, that refugees coming in have, have uh, a, a similar home language as the uh, main population in Portugal, and actually uh, it's coming together for them, and I, that's excellent, actually. So did you hear that, listeners, that actually state school science teachers do better than private school science teachers when socio-economic advantage is taken out of the equation and this is for the first time i agree john that is a massive finding and it's really important that we do point that out and that gives us a really clear step into one of the questions which comes up from the strong focus that there is in the pisa reports that fits with ei's position and that is the question of targeting disadvantage. What did they tell us in this particular set of data about the way that targeting disadvantage can be best achieved by education systems? Well, I think targeting disadvantage is a systemic issue. And I just actually just respond a little bit to that point you made about private education. I mean, I think teachers do a fantastic job across the piece, whether they're working in private or in public schools. What governments have tended to do is counterpose public education with the so-called virtues of a superior privately organised system, when actually the most important thing is the system operates in a positive way for all children and that public education is the right system. Now, I'm not going to make any comments about private schools and what they do, but it does seem to me that a systemic approach applies to private should apply to private schools as well and they should be brought into the system that's the most important thing now in terms of disadvantage um, the uh, I mean this is the other kind of twin pillar of what I would support in PISA 2015 and that is that there are many communities which are very fragile and one of the main messages that comes out of PISA is that is that schools need very very positive support particularly in terms of targeted support for individual students, particularly in terms of support for teachers who need uh, salary recognition. Uh, what they don't do, incidentally, explicitly, and I think when TALIS comes out, we need to tie that together and see whether the Teaching and Learning International study that they're doing actually does that, come to the conclusion and say, well, 
if teachers are working in tough circumstances, then they need school evaluation systems to support them rather than come to conclusions that they are always going to fail in tough circumstances. That needs to be nailed absolutely. Uh, but overall, the notion of specific extra support for disadvantaged students and disadvantaged schools is a welcome message. Mm. Okay, if, if we break that down a bit further, the effects of social class into which boys, which girls, what do we learn about the intersection of class and socioeconomic status yeah. in this survey? There were a number of points made about those areas. Do you want to expand on some of those? Yeah, I mean, I, I think class is one of the great unarticulated issues around what goes on in education. Uh, you might say... <laughs> It's emerged in a very curious form with Brexit and uh, the election of Trump uh, uh, and uh, a whole group of people who feel outside the political discourse. That's one analysis. I'm not going to particularly go down that route, actually. But actually, the major main issue is that actually uh, looking at uh, how systems operate in terms of class is a very good lens to listen to, to look through. So uh, let's take truancy for a sec, yeah. because I know there were points made about that in PISA. What do we learn about truancy and the way it operates? Well, truancy is about, um, in a sense, there's, a, there's a, a very close link between truancy and social class. The, you are more likely to truant if you're a kid from a socially deprived background than not. And one of the, uh, one of the most disconcerting and upsetting things about PISA finding is that actually the very things that kids from deprived backgrounds really need, and that is after-school clubs, uh, breakfasts clubs, for example, additional support, are actually enjoyed by middle-class children rather than working-class children. And it is, it is, you know, actually, Pisa's very explicit about that. Those who write Pisa say, actually, the social class gap is widening in many countries. Mm. And they also say, that's why we need to shift resources to have that kind of extra wraparound support for kids in the toughest circumstances. Very clear and explicit message. Truancy is a classic one. You really, if, if kids are truanting, then you really, really need teams to go out there and find out what the home circumstances are. Uh, you need to be able to talk to parents. You need to actually say school is not a threatening place. It doesn't add another damn thing to your already uh, tough lives. It's about there to support you as well. So I think there's some very interesting messages that could be pulled out even further from PISA 2015. OK, I'll just pick up another strand from you there, John, which is basically what's going on with the early childhood data which tells us that if you disaggregate for class and you look at the way that students are interacting at that level, that there is more chance of students succeeding later on in education if they go to early childhood education, where uh, class irrelevant, but also that you get a greater advantage for lower socioeconomic groups from that sort of engagement. You most certainly do. You most certainly do. Um, and in fact, uh, the absolute zenith of that particular finding is looking at how early years, uh, early years education benefits children of immigrants and refugees and uh, asylum seekers. 
because the difference between having had early years education and not is absolutely massive. It's, it's enormous. I think it's something like 42 times more likely to, uh, to do really well if you had early years education than not. Uh, I, it's been going a long time. All the findings point to it. But what PISA 2015 does is absolutely identify that if you want to actually add additional resources into education, and all sectors need it, but a most beneficial way of doing it is putting it into early years education. Okay, that's excellent. If we look at moving on to gender now, there are a number of points that are made in the, in the report and in the policy platform about gender stereotypes in science, given that, as you've said, the focus of this PISA 2015 was particularly on science. Do you want to take us through some of the subtleties around that? Yeah, I mean, I th it, it is important to remember that it is a report on science, and you can get broad, broad policy proposals, but it is about a report on science. Uh, I mean, basically, the underlying point that PISA make about, makes about science is, is absolutely fundamental uh, to the future. Uh, a, a good science education is fundamental to the future of healthy societies, and that actually you've got to engender through education a real respect for science in, a, in the wider community. In that sense, what does that mean for half of the community, i.e. girls and young women? Uh, and what they find disquietingly is the fact that girls and young women are still bracketed in terms of uh, choices about individual types of science, usually the soft sciences, biology, health education, that kind of thing, whereas the hard sciences such as engineering, uh, physics, uh, generally are the property of boys. And it is really, I mean, this is 10 years since the last PISA science report. Nothing seems to have changed at all. It's flatlining on that issue. No one's cracked these gender stereotypes in that sense. Some have, but there's been no overall cracking of it across uh, those countries who take part in PISA. Uh, and uh, it's not good enough to talk about uh, shifting, um, you know, having positive role medal models, for example, amongst boys for health. What we need to know is what's the relationship between the wider society and why girls themselves can't feel confident enough to actually take up those disciplines, and vice versa. Why are boys not taking up sort of health education, for example? There's a much deeper analysis that needs to be done on that. I was talking to a colleague about this very issue today, and they were talking about the discourse around hard and soft science yeah. and what's going on in the city during the Christmas shopping routine yeah. of all the pink that's there for girls and all the warrior gear that's there for boys. And clearly oh. there's a bigger socio-semiotic no, question that PISA possibly cannot answer on its own. And you raise a very important question, actually, about PISA itself. One of the best things about the early PISAs, particularly PISA 2000, and in preparation for not only this interview but with EI's response, I went back to the first PISA and that was some of the best questions are now no longer answer, uh, are asked about what one might call uh, the cultural circumstances of children's homes. What is it that actually provides the added value if you're out of school that is going to give you the confidence and the cultural background to do well in school? Um, and uh, I think that's an area that the OECD needs to return to. I mean, what they found in 2000 was 
that actually key signifiers of success were not only the quality of teaching in schools, but it was whether or not there were books on the shelves, for example, whether there was uh, uh, regular meals, cultural conversations going on. It sounds a bit um, archaic now, but the basic fact of the matter is that if there's a culture at home, which is why, incidentally, I believe that the East Asian countries do really well because there's an overall societal and familial respect for education that you could say is not absolutely common in a number of Western countries. That seems to me worth investigating. Simply saying it's all down to the school seems to be missing the point about society's respect for education and how important that is. And just playing off that, that one of the other things that they came out with in that report is that the problem that they were having with working class boys could be fixed by having more male role models and more access to digital literacy and computers, which seemed to me to just complete that binary that if we've got men in front of boys, they'll do well. And if we've got a different way of approaching yeah. girls, then, then they will do differently and we'll be able to achieve the highest results. Clearly that's not played out and, and that really has been old hat, that approach. Yeah, it is old hat and I know it's old hat because one of the last things I did before I left my own union, National Union of Teachers, was to commission work on white working class boys' achievement. And what comes over very clearly is that successful schools... Uh, when uh, they're tackling low expectations amongst parents and uh, uh, white kids are saying, it's not for me, I really don't want to do that kind of job, that's for you know those snooty kids who are actually going to be uh, uh, doing the academic jobs. The most important thing is that those schools actually make links with the local communities and are outward facing and that actually what the uh, the principals and the teachers in a united way say is not uh, say is we have very high expectations but we also believe that actually parents themselves should have high expectations and that the school is your home as well now tough ask for teachers in that situation which is why you would argue for additional resources in those schools to make it happen but the most successful schools are the ones who say park any racism at the front door but we're not going to actually exclude you because of your views we actually see the needs of your children as being paramount and will continue to talk to you and will continue to provide support in the home as well but you can't do that without proper resources in the school to enable that to happen Okay, and while we're on brickbats here, we'll just go over that resourcing question for a second or two, <laughs> because there were some strange findings around the resourcing area. Yeah. Yes, there were. I mean, <laughs> there are two E-Day fixes that uh, I think you and I have called them, actually, <laughs> uh, which I just wish the OEC would get, the OECD would get off, because they're actually ones that are uh, unnecessary contradictions um, and counterpositions. The first one is on educational resourcing. Now, what the data shows is that schools, uh, sorry, countries with low amounts of money allocated to education or medium amounts allocated to education, uh, they make a difference to outcomes. But when you reach a certain level, then the amount of money that a country puts in uh, has little different makes very little difference to the outcomes. What I find extraordinary about that uh, assumption, because the OECD then say it's not money, it's about how you use it, is 
that it is money and it is how you use it. It is not a contradiction between efficiency and good resources. There are very, very many things that schools can do and use the money efficiently that they can't do. And a classic one, and that's why I find it quite contradictory, is support for disadvantaged children. If you had enough money, you'd be out there making the links with parents, having that productive outward-facing approach, and you could do much more of it. It would be an infinite possibility. You would be solving problems in the community as well as, and that would have a fantastic positive washback to individual schools. So when the OECD say it's about efficiency and not resources, I begin to despair. However, what I did find very funny at the global launch <laughs> was the Secretary General of the OECD saying very hurriedly when someone uh, made this point to him that actually uh, they still believed that countries had to spend a high amount, relatively high amount, on, of the GDP on education and they certainly weren't going to go in for fiscal consolidation. Uh, uh, so it basically say, never mind what the directorate says in this particular policy conclusion, we still think education and education spending is important. I was very interested to see that uh, particular point being made uh, in relation to PISA. The other, <laughs> the other, the other e-day fix is, is class size. I mean, I don't know. PISA consistently, or rather the OECD consistently say the results of PISA show that actually large class sizes and small class sizes make relatively small amount of difference to children's achievement. Well, if they only looked at their own teaching and learning international study, they would find that actually it's teacher professionalism in large classes that actually means that those children are still being educated, uh, particularly tough kids. But the burnout rate is much, much higher for teachers where there are large classes than small classes. There are thousands of teachers being lost to the profession and leaving teaching because they've had to deal with very large classes. It creates additional workload, and you're very lucky if you can reach retirement in those situations. The other thing I would say, and there's a lot of stuff right, rightly in PISA, which says, listen to what the students say. And the students say, unequivocally, we like small groups and small classes because teachers can give attention to us. I don't know. What can I say? I mean, I just <laughs> wish the OECD had recognised something that's staring them in the face. Yeah, student voice not <laughs> listened to, I think, there, John. So we're going to round off with uh, just our bouquets. We've talked about a few of the brickbats. For me, I'll refer to the finding that came out, which was that for parents... School safety was actually more important than academic achievement for their kids and that we see that picture of student well-being and the whole student yeah. coming through in PISA really clearly in terms of the parent response as well as that underwriting that we know that students who are happier in their schools, who have smaller classes and teachers who can focus on them and their individual needs and who have the extra things which schools can provide in those settings are more likely to do well. Um, I'll just pass to you, John, for your bouquets. Uh, well, I think student well-being is, is absolutely uh, where it's at. And in fact, actually, it's no surprise to me uh, it's 20 years ago since uh, my old union, the NUT, commissioned uh, what was Strathclyde University, then Professor John Macbeth, to do a study of school self-evaluation and look at uh, an accountability system based on school self-evaluation. 
a number of number of uh, micro uh, studies were done of the attitudes of school community and parents themselves wanted the safety of their children as number one priority. I am very, very pleased to see that PISA 2015 recognises that, pulls the conclusions out of that. And indeed, some of the top performing countries, and I noticed that uh, Finland is one of them, is actually saying, are we doing that kind of rounded social curriculum that can enhance children's sense of well-being and self-confidence? That's a good, positive lesson to learn, and people should pick that out of, of PISA. What else do I think it's good on? I think it's extremely good on the issues of equity. I think it's extremely good on understanding the key role of teachers in the classroom. Although I'm a bit critical that there isn't a teacher narrative and a teacher voice coming through because they haven't analysed the teacher questionnaires yet. Disappointing. Disappointing, which they had done. But still, the conclusions in the later parts of PISA, the, the second volume on policy implications, come to the conclusion which PISA and OECD have consistently said, and that is highly paid, highly supported, confident teachers make a massive difference. You won't get from the OECD a view peddled by uh, those who really should know better uh, that somehow you can substitute teachers for low-paid uh, support staff or indeed digitally su uh, substitute them with MOOCs, for example, massive online uh, courses instead of teachers. They recognise that it's teachers that make the difference and that's really one of the things that I've always rated about PISA, PISA in general and I rate about PISA 2015. Thanks, John, for sharing your encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of something which has come out very, very recently. So you chewed that up in absolutely next to no time. So thanks, John, for your time. Thank you. This was Ed Voices from Education International in Brussels on the web at ei-ie.org.